0: We're going to look at the topic today of who is Jesus, uh, which is a massive topic. And to start with, I'd like to show you a clip from the film Notting Hill. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, or if you need your memory uh, jogging, Julia Roberts plays uh, the, a the character called Anna Scott, who by chance has got herself into a relationship with William Thacker, who's played by Hugh Grant. So Anna is this hugely famous, she's hugely beautiful, she's a hugely successful Hollywood star... And Hugh Grant, when he's just this ordinary book clerk from London. And uh, they find themselves in this relationship and they're just starting to get together. And Hugh Grant invites um, Anna Scott, or, yeah, okay, Hugh Grant invites um, Julia Roberts to uh, one of his good friends, to his sister's, sorry, birthday meal. And one of his good friends, Bernie, is there. And no one knows about the fact that Hugh Grant has now got this hugely famous uh, Hollywood star. And this is how it goes. The clip shows you'll never relate to someone properly if you don't know who they are. So Bernie doesn't have a clue who this woman is, and he's making a complete fool of himself. You've got to get someone's identity right if you're going to relate to them properly. And today we're looking at the identity of Jesus, and it's so important we get his identity right, because then we'll relate to him properly. It's a crucial question. I mean, if I was to ask you now, who was Jesus of Nazareth, how would you answer that? However, you answer the question, he's certainly a remarkable guy. Here are some stats. He's had more web pages uh, made about, uh, on him than Madonna and Michael Jordan put together. He's had more movies made about him than James Bond. He's the hero of history's number one best selling book, The Bible. And over a million people claim he can save the world. And that's not bad for a guy that was supposedly born in a shed. Yet nowadays, Jesus Christ is no more than a swear word on the lips of an angry bus driver or a a schoolgirl that's caught her finger in the door. Every week I hear Jesus Christ on the five-a-side football pitch as if he's the one to blame when the shot goes over the bar or the tackle comes in from behind. His name nowadays seems to be nothing more than a swear word. So who is he? Well, Billy Connolly, the comedian, said this. I'm not a Christian But I do think Jesus was a wonderful man. That's a pretty common view. I'm not a Christian, but I think he was a wonderful man. What would you say as you start tonight? Is he a wonderful man? Is he just a swear word? Or is he something more? Or maybe you've never really given it much thought. From a Christian perspective, it is vital the person and the identity of Christ is at the heart of the Christian faith and to be honest everything stands or falls on who he is and what he's done so who who would know most about this guy Jesus well it would be his disciples so tonight we're going to have a look at what what one of his disciples said about him. We're going to have a brief look at a a gospel called Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark was Peter's scribe. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. We'll learn more about him later. Peter couldn't write, and so Mark is Peter's scribe. He writes about him. Next week, you'll all be given a gospel. The delivery didn't come through, I'm afraid, uh, to take away with you. Mark's gospel, you can take away. And through the course, we'll just dip in and out of different bits. So we're going to look at who does Mark, who's Peter's scribe, say, Jesus is. And verse 1 of the gospel, so chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark goes straight in there. It's the first thing he says in his book about Jesus. He says he's, the, he's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's have a look. This is like a, is like a contents page of Mark's gospel. This will then outline everything that's going to come. Uh, it's like, you know... Th- this is my case. I'm now going to try and prove it to you. So let's unpack every little bit. The first bit, the word gospel literally means good news or glad tidings. So what Mark is saying is what I am writing about here is something to sing and dance about. This is good news. Jesus, well, that's the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the man who lived in Palestine, the Jewish person who was born and lived and died about 2,000 years ago, the guy that the Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius record in their books. Jesus, the historical figure. But names in those days had huge meaning. Now, I was born in um, Uganda. My mum and dad worked in a missionary hospital over there. And in uh, lots of parts of the world, like in places like Africa and Uganda, you're you're given a name that is significant about what was going on around the time of your birth. So if you were born on a Tuesday, you might get the name Tuesday. If you were born when it was raining, you might get the name raining. If you were born on a Tuesday night and it was raining, you might be called Tuesday night when it was raining. And I'm not kidding you. So some of the funnier names that we came up with when we we met people over there, one of the names was Tumasime, which means maternity ward. What a name! (laughs) Of course he was born in a maternity war, so I mean that's a great name. Uh, another one, Bibang Korowa, which means they coughed over me, because as they came out, the dad coughed. I mean, your identity is based on your father's cough. I mean that's devastating. It's got a killer kid that, hasn't it? Tagume, which means we are continuing. It's like this is just a passing kid. We're continuing. Every more. And the best one, my favourite is Katagara, which means little black chap. I mean, what an original name. It's an African baby boy, Katagara. So I was nearly called Transit because I was two weeks premature, and my mum was in a transit, and just got to hospital. And I'm so glad she got there. It's not the coolest Transit Vaughan. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. So, um, but you see that a name is given because it has significance, uh, and that's exactly the same with the biblical Hebrew names. So Jesus is the Greek translation of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So this historical figure who is going to be a saviour of some sort. The word Christ, the word Christ, it's not a second name. It's not Steve Vaughan, Jesus Christ. It's not a second name. It's a title. It's a role. He is the Christ. So my dad is a doctor. He's called Dr. Vaughan. He gets that role. He has that title because he's qualified as a doctor. So we can call him the doctor even. So in the same way, Jesus is the Christ, which literally means anointed one. Christ is the Greek. Messiah is the Hebrew. So Jesus, Mark is saying, is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. The Jewish people were waiting for someone to come who would rule and rescue God's people. And Mark is saying, this person, this is the Christ, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah. You could say, he's the king. That's what the Jewish people were waiting for. So this saviour, he's a saviour of some kind, and he's a king of some kind. But most astonishingly, I'm sure you've seen it, he's the son of God. He was a divine being. So Mark starts in emphatic style. He doesn't waste any words, he doesn't pull any punches. He gets to the meat of a book. His book saying, I'm writing historical biography about the, the historical guy, Jesus, who was going to be a savior. In fact, he was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be the king. In fact, he was God's own son. It is an outrageous claim. And Mark deliberately, I think, starts on a controversial cliffhanger to ruffle our feathers and say, will you read my book and see if you agree with my starting point? point. Read on. And so that's the question we're going to look at. Is Mark right? Is Jesus this saviour? Is he this king? Is he really God's son? And I'd love to say, here's the gospel and go away, read it and find out for yourselves. And that will happen next week. You'll get it to take home with you. But tonight I want to draw our attention to three things that I think convinced Mark and Peter uh, that Jesus was this long-awaited saviour king, this long-awaited messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. So we're going to have a look at a snapshot of Jesus' life, a bit like the highlights, like match of the day. We're not going to look at everything. We're just going to take the best bits, what I think are the best bits anyway, and uh, see why Mark is convinced. So what is the first thing we see? Jesus has power and authority to teach. So right again, chapter 1, verses 21 to 22 and 27 and 28, um, it says this. They went to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is like Jesus' headquarters where he does most of his teaching. It's the north side of Jerusalem. It's it's, um, west of um, the River Jordan. It's just by the Sea of Galilee. So they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not just as the teachers of the law. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? Not who is this, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. When Jesus spoke, when he taught in the synagogue, people were startled and amazed. He had authority like no other. His teaching was new and fresh. It was powerful. It made sense of life. It hit the head and it hit the heart. People hung on every word. They'd come for miles, Mark tells us, to even just listen and get a glimpse or hearing of his teaching. Mahatma Gandhi, who was never professed to be a Christian, describes the Sermon on the Mount as the greatest bit of teaching ever given to mankind. Forgive your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be a person of integrity of speech. Adultery is not just an outward act, it's a matter of the heart. Therefore, don't look at a girl lustfully. She's not an object of your gratification, she's someone fearfully and beautifully made in the image of her Creator. Jesus' teaching was superb. And you know what? It all makes sense. Over the last 2,000 years, we've progressed in every area of life. Technology, military power, science, academia, communication, travel, you could go on. No one has to pass the words and the teaching of Jesus. Why? Well, maybe they're the kind of words that only God could speak. Robbie Williams, he's just come back. If you saw, um, uh, what's that show called? X Factor, thank you. He just came back and did his big thing after a time away. He joined Take That in 1990 when he was only 16 years of age. This is brilliant. On the same day he'd learned he'd, uh, he'd passed his audition to get into the band, he'd found out he'd failed all his GCSEs. I mean, how rock and roll is that? And he said this, he went, I really wanted to be someone. And when I heard I'd made it into the band, I ran upstairs, I threw open my bedroom window, and shouted, I'm going to be famous. In an interview with the Daily Telegraph, Robbie says this, through Take That, I'd gone from a house in Stoke-on-Trent to speaking to world leaders. As a child, you always want the best trains or the best BMX, but then you get it, and then there's no pleasure in it anymore. If I put a cigarette in my mouth, there'd be seven people who would try and light it for me. It began to get really tiresome as I'm sure many of you know, he turned to drink and drugs for comfort. And he said this, Once I became a celebrity, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop myself. I was out of my head the whole time. It was drink more than anything else. I just took cocaine because it enabled me to drink more. And he eventually ends up in a rehab center uh, on the advice of his uh, great friend Elton John, which is like, yeah, I have a friend called Elton John. He gives me advice. But uh, as you do when you're rich and famous. So he gets uh, advice of Elton John. and, and um, But you see the pain in his, in his songs, don't you? You see that he's longing for that thing that will give him real satisfaction and fulfillment. He says this, doesn't he? Hopefully. I just want to feel real love in a life ever after. There's a hole in my soul. You can see it in my face. It's a real big place. And I said this last week. I speak to so many people who have everything really. They're not Robbie Williams. They have so much in life. And they wouldn't say it like that, but basically they're saying there's a hole in my soul. You can see it. It's so big. I'm missing something. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am that thing that takes away the hunger that food won't take away it's a hunger of the soul that thing that you really want and then we when robbie gets that next thing he goes it just still doesn't satisfy and get that next and it still doesn't and jesus says i am the thing that takes away that spiritual that soul hunger i am the bread of life and in a world where people kill themselves by blowing themselves up on buses to create terror in the center of london Or as I heard recently in the news, a man would urinate on a handicapped lady as she fell, fallen on the doorstep. And in the last moments of her life, and what was worse, he didn't just urinate on her. He recorded it and put it on YouTube so others could get kicks out of it. A world that seems walking in darkness becoming more and more evil. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I will show you the way to live. I'll bring hope to every and any situation, no matter how desperate no matter how dark the darkness, my light is brighter still. I am the light of the world. Jesus' teaching was like no other, and those that heard it were stunned and startled and says, this guy has authority like no one I've ever heard. But you know what's even more rem- remarkable? Was that unlike many teachers today, and I'm sure many teachers in his day, he practiced what he preached his character matched his teaching. You see, not what ma- we all know this, isn't it? What matters is not what someone says so much as what they do. Does their life back up what they're saying? And there's nothing worse than hypocrisy. Everyone knows it stinks. And psychologists say, your true character is revealed under pressure. Well, when Jesus was hanging for, on a cross for a crime he never committed, he said, Father... Forgive them, like he taught his disciples to say. He showed love for his enemies when they nailed him to a cross. His character matched. His teaching. Not only that, he hung out with the down and outs of society. He had time for those that others didn't have time for. He was found talking to prostitutes, and he gave them status, identity, meaning, and worth. In fact, he said it was for those people he'd come to earth. He had a great sense of humor, yet was known as a man of sorrows. He played with children and took babies in his arms, yet the most hard and cruel of men withered beneath his glare. He was a known as a man of compassion and love, yet people quaked before his anger. He was a man of courage, courage and strength, yet his whole life spoke of humility. He combined patience with power. He cared for others, whatever their need. He accepted others, whatever their background or race. He touched the untouchables, the lepers of his society. He recognized everyone as infinitely valuable because they were made in the image of creator God. His teaching was incredible and his character matched his teaching. It was impeccable. So as you approach lunchtime on this Sabbath day in Capernaum, I reckon the people are starting to ask, is this the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the saviour king that God promised years before? His teaching certainly seemed to imply it and his character backed up everything. He said, but you know what? It wouldn't have been his teaching or his character that would have been the main thing that convinced people who he was. It would have been his deeds. And I want to look at my favorite passage in, the life, or in Mark's Gospel and in the life of Jesus. Um, it shows his power and authority over nature. Let's have a look at the story together from Mark 4. That day when evening came, he says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So as per usual, it had been a long day. People had come from everywhere to listen to Jesus speak. And so he had to get into a boat, go on to Lake Galilee, and everyone stood on the shore so they could all listen to him. And after a long day's teaching, he says to his disciples, let's go and get some rest. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So the location of the Sea of Galilee makes it very susceptible to storms because it's in the basin of mountains. And, so when, and then it says these waves came up. It's like a furious squall. It's a whirlwind. And the wind howled and it gets bigger and bigger. And you can imagine it's getting pretty choppy out there. What was Jesus doing? Verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now historians tell us that a cushion or a carpet would have been put on at the stern of the boat for the distinguished visitor. So there is Jesus sleeping on the cushion. He doesn't feel a thing. He's your kind of you know, your ultimate definition of a heavy sleeper, really, isn't he? He sleeps straight in you know, all the wind and the waves and the noise and the chaos and the, he's just sleeping away. And the, the, the disciples went to him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? But don't forget who these guys are. They're professional fishermen. It's what they've done. They took it over from their dad. They've done this since they were boys. They know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand, and yet they're terrified. This isn't some gentle little waves. This is a furious squall, a massive storm that could kill you. This was life Threatening. And so in the chaos of the wind and the noise and just the you know the rocking of the it must have been absolute mayhem on there. What does Jesus do? Quiet, be still. He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the waves died down, and it was completely calm. Mark says literally, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. As if he's taming a puppy, he says, get down. And like that, it's calm. The disciples, I think they must have been absolutely, the jaws must have just dropped. But what does he do after rebuking the wind and the waves? He rebukes his disciples. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still not know who I am? Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever played that game in the bath? And there'll be a few sniggers. So I know you have. Well, you you know you get your bum on the bottom of the bath and you start rubbing it up and down to make the waves go. You know you're really going for it, like you see. And, and you're trying to get the waves to go up and down the bath, and you know see how high you can get the bath waves. You've done it, haven't you? Yeah. And you're you really going for it, like you see. Going for it. And the waves go up, and you're trying to get to the point where it just goes to the top and then comes back down, and then you realise it's gone to the point of no return. And you're like, oh no, it's going to go over the side, and Mum's going to come in. I played it a long time ago, and Mum's going to come in. <laughs> Imagine saying to your bathwater, quiet, be still. Matt's imagining it. <laughs> I can't even get my bathwater to be quiet. He's on a lake, Galilee. He's got a life-threatening storm. These professional fishermen are petrified. And he just says, as if he's speaking to a puppy, down. And in an instant, it's calm. Nature had got out of control, but here was a man who could control nature. So not surprisingly, they were terrified. Nature got out of control and they were scared of that. They're now terrified of the man who can control nature. And they ask each other the question I want us to ask tonight, who is this man? That's the topic for tonight. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But I want to suggest something else that is interesting. You see, these disciples were good Jewish boys. They knew their Old Testaments very well. They'd been to the synagogue every Sabbath all of their lives. They knew the story of Yahweh, Almighty God. They knew the story of Moses. They knew the story of Abraham. They knew the story of King David. They knew the story of the parting of the Red Sea. They knew Psalm 89. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you steal them. Words written thousands of years before Jesus. Who in all of the world has the power over the sea? Who in all of Old Testament history can calm a storm? These Jewish disciples knew exactly there was only one person in the whole of the world Psalm 89 says, Oh, Lord God Almighty. And they were terrified because he was in a boat with them. I love the way C.S. Lewis captures the power of Christ in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I don't know if you've read the book or seen the film. And the children uh, have just met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they've heard about Aslan for the first time. Aslan, this great sort of figure, no one quite knows who he is yet in the book. And Susan pipes up "'Who is Aslan?' "'Aslan,' said Mr. Beaver. "'Why don't you know he's the king? "'He's the lord of the whole wood.' "'Shall we see him?' asked Susan. "'Of course,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'Is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan, a man,' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you he's the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who's the king of the beast? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' Then is he safe, said Lucy. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think the disciples were starting to get a picture that the children had in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. This guy is not a cute, cuddly guy. He's not some spiritual equivalent of the Milky Bar kid. He is the Lord God Almighty. In front of them has just calmed a storm with a word. Maybe they hadn't got all the way to concluding that, but you can bet your life inside they're going, has God stepped down into time and space to bring order and peace and calm into a world that seems out of control? Maybe the creator himself has stepped down into this damaged and broken creation to give us a glimpse of how things were meant to be. A world of order, harmony, peace, security, and infinite beauty. So that's the story. Now, I imagine a lot of you are thinking, you cannot be serious. No one believes this mumbo-jumbo This is just myth. Jesus was just a legend. You're not supposed to take this story at face value. Certainly the eminent theologian and fountain of all knowledge, Peter Kay, in his hilarious biography said this, I believe that a man called Jesus did walk the earth at one time, but I don't think he was the superhero that the Bible makes him out to be. Could he really turn water into wine? Did he really raise people from the dead? Well, if David Blaine can't survive underwater in a tank for seven days without needing medical attention, then I very much doubt it. I think Jesus was just an ordinary person like you and me. Steve, no one really believes this anymore. Mark is making it up. It's a bunch of fairy tales. It's not a historical event. It's a myth. Now, there's so much I could say on this topic. It's a whole topic in itself. But I want to look at one verse just from this story, that might give you at least the idea, well, let's just start to even think it could be. If that's you, and it's a very legitimate question, a very legitimate question of thought, let me just try and give you a bit of hope to say, well, maybe I should just open the door to it being a historical event. There's so much more that can be said. We can have more table discussions afterwards. Look at verse 36. Leaving the crowns behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. This is such an important verse. It's so interesting and it's so important. You know why? It has no relevance for the story whatsoever. It adds nothing that we need to get the whole picture of who Jesus is. Yet Mark records very precise details. They took him along. There were also other boats with him. Why does he record that? I don't know. But here's one thing I know. Verses like these start to answer... One of the main criticisms to Christianity, which is the Bible isn't reliable. Jesus was a myth. As the Bible got passed down, it was changed over all the generations, etc. You know that, You know the criticism. The problem with that objection, it's a good objection, is that it's not written in the style of a myth. It's written as history. Why record pointless details about the number of boats? Myths make up a good story. They give flowery language. They ignore insignificant details. There's a dragon, there's a princess, there's a prince, there's a tower, the the prince saves the princess. There's not details that are insignificant and boring left in there. And yet time and time again, when the Bible records something to the level of insignificant detail, which adds nothing to the story, secular historians or archaeological evidence Backs it up. And verse 36 is no exception. It's not massive. I'm just trying to give you a, a little thought to think about. Josephus, a non-Christian Jewish historian, records as many as three hundred and thirty fishing boats sailed the lake, which would fit Mark's attention to detail. Mark, if you read the Gospel, is not making up a myth. He's trying to write history. He's an eyewitness, or he's Peter's scribe, and Peter was the eye-witness. So firstly. Why record insignificant details that end up being backed up? Secondly, why would Mark or Peter make it up? What were their motives? He gained nothing and he lost everything for what he wrote about Jesus. In fact, it cost him and Peter their lives. And we'll look at this a bit more and we look at the resurrection in two weeks. But not only that, just think of this one story in the gospel. They don't paint themselves in very good light. They come across as dumb and stupid and scared. If you were going to write a story where you were one of the main characters and it was a myth, you wouldn't come across as a scaredy cat, would you? Thirdly, why would a Jew and a friend of Jesus make it up? You see, here's the thing. What's incredible, as I've already said, is the guy making this story up, if it is made up, is a Jew born and bred in Jerusalem, he knew his Old Testament. But what is the main thing the Jews believe? The Shema, well Shema, Josh is here, he'll tell me how to pronounce it. The Shema is the first thing that they said of the kind of Ten Commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are, you should have no gods before me, you must not worship any idol, anything that's made, anything that's of this earth. The Jews believed in the beginningless creator God of all the earth, and they worshipped him. If Jesus is God, then he's to be worshipped. But the Jews have been told for centuries, never worship anything from this world. It's an idol. You only worship the creator. Every Jewish boy from the age of eight would have learnt those two commandments off by, uh, off, you know, by memory the last person you're going to convince on the face of the earth that Jesus, a G, a Jesus is God would be a Jew. For years, they've been trained to think nothing from this earth could be God. Don't worship anything of this earth. And you notice, if you read Mark's Gospel and lots of Gospels, people worship him all the time. More than that, though, more than a first century Jew, the last person to believe that Jesus is the Son of God are the people you sleep with, people you eat with, the people you live with, the people that are closest to you. You know, it's the same today, isn't it? Someone's heralded as this great person, they're put on a pedestal, and then the real story comes out in the paper. The best friend from old couldn't resist telling the tabloids a bit of gossip that really gets into the dodgy, shady parts of this person's life from the past. No matter how well you respect someone, you will align and know your best friend, you still know they've got a load of faults, even though they're your best friend. The person that Jesus convinces are his best friends. They would have seen him when he was caught off guard. They would have seen him in the ordinary mundane moments of life. And they conclude, now he really is the son of God. He is the saviour king. His teaching is unmatched. His character is impeccable. And his deeds are awe-inspiring. Now, I know I've just scratched the surface. I'm not saying that's a comprehensive treatment. I just wanted to open the door. If that's you to say, well, just give it a go. There should be enough there to make you think, well, let me take the story at face value. There's more. I've got other stuff here we can look at about the evidence for the manuscripts and all that. That's fine. They're good questions. I just think, don't dismiss it as legendary just like that. Take it at face value and look at it. There's enough that should convince you. So let me draw this to a close. We come to the end of our snapshot into the life of Jesus, and it's been a whistle-stop tour. Mark says he's the Christ, he's the Savior, he's the Son of God, he's this King. And he's convinced because his teaching is like no other, his character is impeccable, and he even calms the storm. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in the boat with the disciples. Who is this man? That's the question. It's such an important question because if there's any chance that he is who he says he is, you can bet your life... He'll change every single person's life who accepts him like he just changed Dave's life, like you just heard it. If he is who he says he is, could could Mark be right? Could God himself have come down in time to bring order out of chaos, peace out of turmoil, clarity in confusion? Bono, who um, is the famous famous singer and songwriter and uh, political activist, I've just finished his biography, Uh, He reworked something C.S. Lewis did years ago, commenting on the identity of Jesus. And his interviewer says this. He's talking about Jesus of faith. And he says, that's a great idea. This is the interviewer. That's a great idea. No denying it. Such great hope is wonderful, even though it's close to lunacy, in my view. Christ has his rank among the world's greatest thinkers. But son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Bono's reply. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look. The secular response to Christ's story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. I'm God who's come to earth. And people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We we had John the Baptist, and Mark records him, eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, 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 no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts to look at their shoes and say, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, you're talking a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the course of civilization for over half of the globe could have had its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. It's a provocative thing that Bono says. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He cannot be a good moral teacher. When you look at what he says about himself, he's got to be a liar. He's got to be making up, trying to deceive us. Like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the thing that takes away that satisfaction. He's either a liar trying to deceive us. He's a lunatic like Bono's making now. He's a nutcase. He doesn't know what he's on about. He's just not quite there in the head. Or He's Lord. He's liar, lunatic, Lord. He's not a good moral teacher. That's the one thing we can't say about him. He doesn't—he doesn't look like a good moral teacher when you read the Gospels. That's C.S. Lewis. That's Bonos' sort of way of their logic, their challenge. So here are the four questions. You can have a look on your table. We'll have uh, dessert, tea, and coffee, and all the rest of it now. Just something. Who do people in Britain think Jesus is? Just get yourself going. Start thinking about that. What questions, objections do you have about Jesus? So let's air them. That's fine. Um, If we can't answer them all now, hopefully we can throughout the course. Uh, What do you make of the C.S. Lewis's three options, lie, lunatic, Lord? And who do you think Jesus is after tonight or just generally? Okay, so thanks for listening. We'll have uh, tea and coffee and dessert, served now. And then there's half an hour for discussions.